going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. As months turned to years, detectives ran out of ideas. Eventually, all leads were exhausted and the investigation came to a halt. Other cases took their attention. The case remained open, but was no longer being actively pursued. I've spent my fair share of time thinking about what could have happened to Jeanette, and I speculated and discussed it with anyone who listened. And then one day, I had an idea, to hear the opinion of an expert. So I got in touch with acclaimed criminal behavioral analyst and psychologist, Laura Richards. Richards is an expert in domestic violence, stalking, sexual violence, and homicide. If you haven't listened to her podcast, Real Crime Profile, you should. It's fascinating. She also consulted on the Netflix documentary, Dirty John, The Dirty Truth. So I shared the case file with her, and then the two of us met in West Hollywood, where we recorded for a whole day. Her insight was eye-opening. This episode will be a little different from the others. It's a conversation with an expert where I discuss what we know so far. In the next episode, I'll be picking up the story where I left off. From The Labyrinth and Case File Presents, I'm Octavia McHenry. So it's never one thing in a case. You know, it's, it's cumulative. It's a cumulative of where the red flags reside. Right, right. And human error does happen. But this is almost the perfect storm. Yeah. It couldn't be more perfect in terms of circumstances that seem to be, you know, they're going against the tide rather than with. And when you get the perfect storm scenario, I'm, I'm always very intrigued by that. Having analysed the material that you've given me, there certainly seems to be this aspect of real vulnerability to Jeanette. The traumatic brain injury had a, a physical aspect, but also a mental aspect. And so let's talk about the physical side, first of all. Sure. And the physical side, she's blind in one eye and she has tunnel vision in the other eye. So that in and of itself renders her 100% dependent. She is not able to have a depth perspective or periphery vision either. So when we're talking about the area where she went missing, this is a huge aspect that we have to think about in, in this case, that she's 100% dependent on people around her in order to be able to get from A to B. Right. Yeah. So not only her vision, but she didn't even like to exert herself. So she had a very difficult time walking between her weight, her physical condition and her vision. She really couldn't get very far. Right. She was five foot three, yeah. um, weighing 250 pounds at, at least. So again, just thinking about physicality, right. um, along with the fact that, that she can't see, she's not going to be moving very fast. No. And no. so again, time is a really important aspect of this case, both 
the accounts that people give, the timeline, and the practical aspect of her being able to move around in this terrain and, and the distance that she might be able to travel in the time that we've heard mum, who was the last person to see her, but also her mental capacity. I mean, she couldn't remember things. And she also had, a, in terms of her sort of response, she had the mental capacity of a five to seven-year-old, I heard from the family right. say when they were describing her. It's hard to categorize uh, because in some fields, she displayed the maturity of someone closer to 12, but in others, she had the abilities of a much younger child. So it's really hard to put an age bracket to it. Well, I think the 100% dependent aspect is is a key part. Okay. And listening to dad, Eduardo, who, who's a doctor, and we'll talk about him specifically, but he says that she was their shadow, that she followed right. them around, you know, kind of like a toddler does. Like a toddler, yeah. yeah that's the impression that I right. got. That and her attention span was really short. She couldn't focus on an activity for longer than a minute or two. And also she would just, she had short-term memory loss. She would just forget everything. Like she would be constantly asking her parents questions like, what year is it? How old am I? How old am I going to be on my next birthday? Where are we? What day is it? Just constantly. Right. So you can imagine what it's like, you know, being in your 60s and having a toddler with you 24-7. Yeah, you've gone back in time. I mean, she was the eldest of four. Yeah. So they're a big family, and now your eldest has really gone back to to being a toddler. And I would imagine that has a huge impact on the family and and the primary caregiver, which in this case, it was mum. Is that right? Yes, she was. So dad, I mean, Eduardo talks about the fact that he was a GP and and still is. He He has two practices. And he also is a pastor. So he, in his own admission, says, you know, I'm incredibly busy. I'm, I leave, I get up for work at 6.30. I sometimes return at 10 p.m. For mum, if she's there having to caregive 24-7, I would imagine that's a huge um, yes. toll and burden, essentially. Yeah. And I would imagine that this, looking after Jeanette, who no doubt she's still adored, but the burden of that 24-7 care, that if that one child that you're looking after constantly looks to you and you don't get a break, that is wearing and it's really fatiguing. And even on holiday, this holiday, they've chosen a holiday that's a lot of work involved. It's camping. It's actually physically having to do things. It's not sitting back on a sun lounger. It didn't sound particularly relaxing given that all the church members of the church were coming up on the Saturday and therefore there was going to be a, I think dad said, a service and they'd sort of be entertaining again. The other thing that I just heard her sister talking about was just how vocal she was as well. She sounds to me like she would somebody who, if she didn't want to do something, she would articulate that. Yes. Oh yeah. She was, um, yeah, she, she could get pretty feisty if she didn't want to comply with what her family would tell her to do. It sounds like she's not someone who's just going to go willingly against her will. If it wasn't something that she wanted to do, she would make it clear. Not only was she very vocal and her voice was very loud, but also she was a big girl. So it would have been really hard to coerce her physically. So when you have an, you know, a non-compliant victim, someone who would fight back. So sometimes mm-hmm. people say some, they were very feisty. They would do X, Y or Z. You know, and you have to get a sense. They were a shy, retiring wallflower. They didn't you know, put themselves out there. They would go along with things. Whereas it sounds to me, Jeanette was not that person. She would make it clear. She was pretty assertive. So again, Mm -hmm. you know, thinking about what happened 
with, well, mother's three accounts about what happened, you would expect that she would have been hearing something if Janet was forcibly being led somewhere against her will or, you know, her coming out and and the timeline we will get to because the mum says that it's about a minute window of time where Jeanette just disappears. Um, And that minute, well, we know it's just not possible for someone to disappear in a minute because Jeanette is not going to be moving anywhere in a minute. Right. She's not going to be physically taking herself off in a minute. And it's very difficult for someone to be able to get control over someone like Jeanette unless there is a firearm or something involved in Um, that minute. Unless it's somebody she knew, then she would have gotten into a vehicle with them willingly is what the family says. She had an Achilles heel, which was pizza. Her family literally said she will do anything for pizza. But that would have to be somebody who knew who knew that. And, and apparently a lot of people in their community knew that. Everybody who knew Janet knew that about her. Okay, it is highly unlikely that that happened. Because if you play it out for an organized group to follow this family up into the mountains to wait for that moment where Janet is no longer with her mom, where they're separated. Which could have never happened. To jump out of a car, to put pizza under her face, to take her in the car, to drive back down the mountains, then to care for her across that time. For what? And I have to say, Occam's razor is normally the principle I operate from. The simplest explanation is normally the most likely. But that having been said, you have to look at the five different hypotheses. But that one, for me, is probably one of the most ridiculous things I've heard. And therefore, we've got to go back to the basics. What do the facts and evidence support? You know, we still can't place her on that mountain. And that bothers me the most in this scenario, that we haven't got an independent person saying she was there. And if search and rescue said to you, if their general sense was she was never there, Mm -hmm. I'm I'm curious about that. Because I I arrived at that conclusion just from the fact no one could visually place her there. They arrived from it, from being there and understanding everything that was going on at that time. That doesn't mean to say that she wasn't there, Mm-hmm. but you would expect a third party to be able to corroborate it. There was at least three groups that were camping. Everybody reported seeing a man and a woman. And the father, the way he responds to that is, well, it could have been me and my daughter or me and my wife. Maybe my daughter was inside the RV or my wife was inside the RV and so they saw me and my daughter. Who knows who they saw? And that's uh, completely plausible. At the same time, it's curious that nobody ever saw three individuals at the same time. Particularly when one of them is highly dependent on the other two. True. And like you said, followed them around like a shadow. Yeah. And they were dad's own word. So that to me is a, is a red flag. Thinking about, you know, there's other witnesses and what they say. Do they give descriptions of the female in particular? Because again, Jeanette stands out. You know, and I think Eduardo, to use his phrase, he says, when you meet her, you would never forget her. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Ranger Cox said an elderly couple. So that would, you know, that sounds more like the description of Eduardo and Lydia. Everybody else, I, I think, doesn't specify. They just say a man and a woman. Except for this one couple that are camping, I believe they're the only ones who give a description of someone who sounds more like Janet and that is that they saw a man and a woman, and they described the woman as 
short and heavy set. And like I was telling you, I Lydia, Jeanette's mom, she's petite, but I wouldn't necessarily define her as heavy set at all. Right. Um, so here's what they said. They call them the subjects from the white van. They said that they saw a man and a woman outside the RV. The woman, short and heavy set, with long black hair tied in a ponytail, was fussing with luggage compartments outside the RV. So that does sound like the description of Janet, because I don't believe Lydia ever did have long hair. The subjects did not talk to them or ask them for help looking for their daughter. Hmm. I mean, I think given that there are very few people around and you want to find your daughter, you're probably going to say to them, did you see anything? You know, we were up by the restroom. If she does come back, can you let her know we're searching for her at the very least? But given that there was nothing said to them, I think that omission is an important one. Not alerting people around. Normally you would want to just ensure that everybody around you knows what's going on at the very least. So... Behaviorally, that's, again, a red flag. So, you know, normally in cases, we would say, well, did you ask anybody around you? Did you shout their name? Because that's the first thing you do when people go missing, mm-hmm. right? But we're not hearing that. I'm reading from the missing person report here, where the witness David Wilkinson, who you heard from in the previous episode, stated that the Castrions did not ask for their help in locating Jeanette. At the time of this conversation with Laura, I hadn't spoken to this witness yet, and I was under the impression it was a male and female couple. That's because they were referred to as a couple in the report. However, after speaking with David, he was able to confirm that he was actually with his son, Josh. So in this episode, you will hear them being referred to as a couple. So both the couple in the white van and those five guys say that around 5 p.m. they hear shouting. And... 5 p.m. would have been well before Janet was missing because, you know, initially I thought, like, maybe they just heard them shouting and calling for her. But 5 p.m. is, you know, way too early for that. So I asked them. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so it's way too early, you're saying. According to whom? According to the version they gave that she was last seen at 6.30. Right. Okay, so that's one of the questions is that, you know, normally when someone goes missing, you hear a commotion, you hear the name being called. So we have to think about those other campers who, what did they hear? What did they see? And if it changes the timeline, because if Ranger Cox says that they get there at 2.30 and Janet is somebody who is a hungry person, maybe dinner was earlier. Right. Maybe all of this is pushed forward and actually happens sooner than what's being said. Because, you know, again, with the whole Oscar arriving, they put a window of anywhere between six and eight o'clock. Yes. A two-hour window. Yes. You know, and he calls for help at 21 at 9, 10? Yes. Okay, so... That timeline of pegging key points is important because how long is it really, even if we're being generous, is it from the point that she allegedly goes missing to the point that trained expert helpers are called in to find her? And the answer is it could be that she goes missing around 5, 5.30 and the call isn't made until 10 past 9. 
we're hearing that there was some yelling of some description. And actually, it's interesting that both the couple and the men camping put it around the same time. Right. I asked the parents, were there any arguments? Were, is there a reason, you know, people heard yelling? What could it have been? Did you have an argument, for instance? And the father said, no, I, we had no argument. Like, he's like, no, there was absolutely no arguing. I don't, don't know what you're talking about. The mom thought about it for a minute and then said, well, I hurt my thumb at one point while we were unpacking. She got her thumb caught somewhere. And she said, it, it really hurt. And her husband said, it's not such a big deal. Don't make such a big deal about this. And she said she was a little irritated. And she said, it is because it, it, it is a big deal. It hurts a lot. So, and she was like laughing as she was telling me this. She was kind of, she made it sound like it was just like a bickering between, you know, an old married couple, like that it was no big deal. She said, maybe that's what they were hearing. Very different from yelling. It, yelling is very different from having a crossword with someone. Yes. Know, a, a point of tension. Sure. So. Unless she yelled when it hurt well, at, at that moment. Well, what are you going to do when you hurt your thumb? What kind of noise do you ow. make? Yeah. <laughs> like is that, that. Is that yelling? I mean, normally it's like a, ow! You know, something that comes out. It's quite yeah. short, sharp. Yeah. It's not long. Mm-hmm. True. Um, Unless I, the pain is sustained and then it might go on for a longer time. No, I didn't sound like it. But I wish, you know, they would have asked them, like, what kind of yelling? How, was it repeated? Was it prolonged? Was it more than one person yelling? Like, right. so many questions. Yeah. Is it a name calling? You know, is it that you're right. hearing somebody yelling someone's name repeatedly? Yes. Well, right. And if it was a name calling, I mean, five o'clock would have been, wouldn't have fit the timeline. Well, it wouldn't fit their timeline, their timeline. That, yes. that they yeah. give. Mm-hmm. But my sense about this case is that things happened earlier on. Mm-hmm. My sense is that it's earlier. They arrived there at, at 2.30. We've got time unaccounted for. And yeah. I just get that sense from everything that all the different aspects that sit around it put it as happening slightly earlier. And that's unshakable. And certainly hearing two accounts saying around 5, 5.30, you know, the yelling could be them calling for her. It could be an altercation. It could be that she's yelling. She's yelling because they're making her do something she doesn't want to do. And do they say anything about that yelling? Is it kind of whoops of joy or yelling of kind of something that's no, stressy? They, they don't, they're not questioned further about what kind of yelling they hear. They said that they couldn't understand what was being said. At the time of my conversation with Laura, I hadn't yet interviewed the other campers. Once I did, I asked them about the yelling. All four of them independently told me the same thing. And then it says that around 5 to 5.30, you heard some yelling. Okay, I don't remember that specifically. I don't remember the yelling, no. Do you recall that? I don't recall any yelling. So you have no recollection of the yelling? No. But they also added this. Vaguely, what I think it might have been the yelling some... Uh, if I remember right, the yelling, I think, was they were calling after looking for her or something, but I don't remember for sure. That, that could be. I don't remember, to be honest. Okay. Yeah. Oh, well, unless it was, yeah, again, unless it was them calling for her, but I don't specifically remember that. You know, it, it, it's been so long, but uh, it, it could be that, that they were hollering at that time looking for her. I, I don't know. But I think, you know, sometimes people don't recall what they didn't hear. 
you would think that they would have volunteered and we heard them calling your name. But then again, I don't know. Well, in an area, I mean, again, it would be useful for us to have a look at it. But normally if, you, if it's canopied and, and voices carry on a mountain. Yeah, I mean, having been right. on Kilimanjaro, having been on many, many mountains, you know, particularly in the dead of night, when it's dark, voices carry mm-hmm. much more. So right. they hear yelling at between 5 and 5.30, so they don't report. And then it continued. We just kept hearing, it was like a name being called. And it might be in there somewhere, right, later on. But that's what you would expect in a missing person case. You hear and you, f- you sense there's an energy change. We also know when search and rescue arrive, when Nolan arrives on the scene, the dad does not even acknowledge him. Yes. Right, so that is a highly unusual situation that resonated for, for I Nolan. I think so too. The explanation that he gives for uh, not acknowledging Nolan, not going to talk to him and immediately joining the search efforts is that he says, well, they came and they assured us that they were going to find her and that everything was going to be all right. And I trusted them. And so I was dealing with this, you know, huge issue, which is the RV was like had become, it was basically stuck. About to drop off a ledge? No, 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 not that critical. It was more just like that the wheels weren't touching the ground on one side. Right. So so it just kind of got upended and he was trying to... I don't remember the word they used. And so he was trying to jack it up to get it back on the road. Right. He was real busy with that. And he was, he said, well, I had just searched for her frantically for like the past two or three hours. And then this happened and they arrived and they took over and I trusted them. And I just thought, you know, I let them do their job. They seemed like they knew what they were doing. They assured us that they were going to find her as soon as possible. I can tell you almost in every case, you would see that person run to the individual who is going to be responsible for finding your daughter and want to know what they're going to do, how they're going to do it, and would want the detail and be able to impart information. And you hang off every word. And anyone who's ever lost a a child for a split second in a supermarket or, you know, their pet, you know, their dog goes missing or you know in those moments you are just running off adrenaline Mm -hmm. and you hang off every word that the person who's going to help you is going to tell you. And so to have this reaction that Noland himself says, you know, I arrived there, he doesn't even acknowledge me. Again, it's a red flag. It's it's an abnormal response to the situation. And as the situation is an abnormal and extraordinary situation in and of itself, but there are some things that tend to remain salient in terms of behavior, that the rescuer is the person that gets the full attention. So we know that they arrive at camp at 2.30 because Ranger Cox puts them there at 2.30. And I would imagine for Ranger Cox, you know, he is a busy weekend coming up. so a holiday weekend of sorts because it's Father's Day. And therefore his time line and his account is probably the most accurate. I would imagine if you're the ranger, you know you've got certain jobs to get done and he actually says, I had to leave at, at 2.50. So that is, it kind of corroborates what Eduardo says, dad says in his interview that, that I listened to with police where he says, we left at about 10.30 and we got there around 1.30, 2 o'clock. That was, that was where he originally put their arrival time. So that, that sounds about right. It does, yeah. I think Ranger Cox is the most reliable witness here when it comes to 
the arrival time. So the the 3.30 was what the police, when they looked at the record, they saw that it said 3.30 on it. Yep, it said 3.28. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. So you need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. And it needs to say, I'm a thoughtful person, and I appreciate you, and I know exactly what you like, all at the same time. Well, Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life, like the pickleballer, the jazz fan, or the pasta lover. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality TV and gaming, there's something for everyone on Etsy. Whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you, Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We're talking about the arrival time the Castellans wrote down on the payment envelope. Rustler Park operates on an honor system. Campers drop money into a fee box with the use of an envelope, and they're supposed to note down other information on there too, like their arrival time, their campsite number, license plate, that sort of thing. I don't think it was ever cleared up, like why it said 3.30, except for, I think, somewhere in the report, someone suggested that because the cell phone towers at Rustler Park receive data from New Mexico, which is an hour ahead, and that that's the explanation, because maybe they looked at their phone and said 3.30 instead of 2.30, which is what time it would have been in Arizona, because, again, we are so close to the border. Right, but that's if they filled it out the minute that they took it. Yes, they wouldn't have, yeah, the timestamp would have been if they filled it out the minute that they took it. And frankly, I don't know, maybe they took it, filled it out, and then didn't go, you know, return it until that 6.30 time. Or maybe, because yes, because it said 3.28, which is a very specific time, you wouldn't... You wouldn't say, oh, I think we arrived around 328, you know, of something that happened four hours ago. You would say, I think we arrived around 330. Right. Yeah. She says she peed and it took her maybe a minute. She says her exact words to me were not even a minute. And then later she has said, you know, a couple of minutes at the most. And quite frankly, I can relate to that. I am really fast (laughs) going to the bathroom, especially like if it's, I get really grossed out by, you know, I don't think it's a real bathroom with morning water. So it's like, do you know what I'm talking about? It's kind of, I don't know how you define those, but it's kind of like a a hole in the ground. I would do my thing and get out of there as soon as possible. And sometimes those don't even have sinks to wash your hands. Right. But but there's an age difference between you and her. Mm -hmm. The older people are, the longer it tends to take them of clothing removal. So it could just be that she's, you know, I was barely in there. It's that kind of expression. She's not talking about actual time. I was in there physically for 60 seconds. In one of these supplements, one of the detectives is noting how he thinks it's bizarre that mom chose to ignore the bathroom, like right next to the RV, 
ignore the fact that there was a bathroom in the RV. Right. Pass this bathroom and go to the bathroom that's, you know, as far away as possible. Yeah. The most inconvenient one. And this is primarily to put the envelope into the the box, right? Right. I got the sense that she just wanted to stretch her legs and walk because Janet is not very mobile. Her husband is, while he likes to be active, like his physical conditions, he's similarly to Janet, he's not very fit. Right. And so I got the sense that she just felt like stretching her legs and moving, which I totally get. Yeah. Um, They've been traveling and and they get there, they've had dinner. Exactly. Right. But the the transact time here is one of the most important things because... She's walking away, and principle of least effort, normally people walk towards the route that they're going to use the bathroom, you know, unless you were desperate. Another explanation was maybe she wasn't desperate, but she just felt like walking a little bit more. And, you know, being tied to Janet physically 24-7, I can only imagine that you feel like carving out sometimes to just have a little bit of freedom where she might have felt that the area was so safe that what could possibly go wrong? There's only one road. I'm probably going to get out of the bathroom and still see her before she even turns the corner at, at the pace that she walks at. But you can't see anything when you're in an actual restroom. No, because there's there's like um, a wall covering the front door. Yeah, so, so, from the wind. so it's a mute point because when you're in a... It's like, you know, with the McCann case saying, well, we were sat across and it's 100 yards, but with a fence and with a concrete wall, you're not going to see anything in there. True. So she's not seeing anything no, once no, she's, she's in the bathroom. No, she's not seeing anything there. But I, I mean, when she got out past that wall, she would have actually... She said that she kind of expected to see her by the time she got out because, again, because of her slow pace, she thought that by the time that she was done, she would have caught up with her or at least seen her at the end of the road, but she didn't. And she was surprised. She thought, oh, how strange. She's walking so fast. And so she kept walking, turns this corner and still doesn't see her. We know that she didn't arrive at the RV. No. So do you know about the father sitting, watching from the rearview mirror? Yes. He, his version is that he's sat in the RV whilst they're doing this. Yes that he sat in the driver's seat looking out of the side mirror. And he was on his phone, and he was just kind of keeping an eye on the mirror, just checking when they were coming back. And somebody actually heard, two people actually heard him say that he did see her walk by, and he didn't stop her. And then when questioned, he said, I never said that. You misunderstood me. Like, you know, that doesn't make any sense. The fact that two independent professionals say that, he told them independently that he looked in the wing mirror and he saw Jeanette. Did both those two professionals who are trained to understand everything that's going on get it wrong? Question mark. This with the mirror probably was a misunderstanding because it wouldn't, right? I mean, it wouldn't have made sense for if he was concealing something, you know, if he was lying, like, it wouldn't make sense for him to say, I saw my daughter walk by and I didn't do anything about it. Because that's, that's kind of defeats well, the purpose now. Well, it would if you need to place her there. And most people aren't criminally sophisticated, right? Mm-hmm. So they don't know if you're, if, if something happens and you're having to either cover something up or hide something, you have to come up with a new version of what went on. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you have to do that in a short space of time. 
So sometimes you get leakage of things. Uh, you're not really sure what to say uh, at what point. So maybe you do say something and you you put her there. Mm-hmm. And then maybe you think of it and you talk to someone else and you think, I probably shouldn't have done that. That now yeah. takes us down a different okay. track. Right. Not the rational brain. It's the reptilian brain that's operating in a fear state. And I'm not saying that's happened here, but yeah. I'm just saying people under pressure in cases that I've worked and reviewed and analysed and, and been part of, what I do understand about people under pressure is that they do very strange things. And it's we look at these cases in the cold light of day and we try and think about things in a rational way. And you said, when I put myself there, well, you could never put yourself there because until it happens to you, we never really know what we would do. Certainly what I do know is that in fear and under pressure, people make some very bad choices. And sometimes things just aren't rational. What is more rational, what I've thought many times, is to get five people who are lying to get their story straight. But then again, you could argue they didn't really, they, the story isn't really straight because there's a lot of... It's not straight at all. No. And you don't always have to have five people who know. We may have a period of time where only two people or even one person knows. Okay, so... It's still something that you have to think about because the timeline is not straight. The version of events is not clear. Mum gives three versions. If it were one version and it stayed consistent, no problem. But it's a big difference between, yes, she came back up with me to the restroom. She either waited outside, I had the door open, to no, she started walking back down here. Now, if dad hears her saying she's walking back down here, maybe he feels he needs to place her down there. Right. I'm just saying, I'm just pontificating mm-hmm. off that. But the version of events changes. So yeah. we have to ask questions of that. This 100% dependence, you know, when thinking about victimology, that renders her very vulnerable in, in this terrain, but it also makes her a high-risk victim that, that when she disappears, when she can't be found, this makes her high-risk right from the start, a vulnerable, high-risk person. It means that when they can't find her, then the risk should ramp up immediately when they see no sign of her. So again, when we think about the timeline, the discrepancies in the timing, you know, the minute that she can't be found, you would expect a phone call, the initial search to happen by the family, to search the terrain that that they possibly can do within their limitations, because they're not a search and rescue team. But the minute that you know that it's beyond... I would be expecting a phone call to be going in or uh, someone speaking to a ranger to explain what happened and for that to be escalated immediately. But there appears to be a a time lag. Yeah. Initially, the dad says like 6.20 is when his wife and daughter go down to the fee box. So I would imagine, you know, I think he said within 10, 15 minutes at most, his wife was back up there. And, you know, informed him that Janet was essentially missing. So between like 6.45 to 8 or 8.30 when Oscar arrived, that's a significant amount of time. It is. To and be searching and... In the dark. And I mean, when you well, add it wasn't in, dark yet. Well, from the hours of 7.25 to, to 9.10, if we take just that, that window mm-hmm. and... The reason why I say that is this. she That is a significant window of time in the context that she's high risk, she's vulnerable, she's dependent. 
it's dark. Eduardo's not mobile. No. Okay, he, he uses a cane. So yeah. his ability to be able to search is curtailed and limited. And whatever time Oscar arrives, you now have two more adults and you've got two children. Right. Right. So it's a case of saying, well, I need to stay here because we need to carry on looking. You go and you make the phone call. Right. There's enough of them to say some people stay and somebody else goes to make the call. Yeah. So the simple point is this here, irrespective of because we've got a lot of noise around the timeline. So, Mm -hmm. you know, when Oscar arrives and, and so on. But the simple fact is if the sun goes down at around 7.25 in the evening, but a phone call is not made for assistance until 9.10, that is a significant amount of time when you've got a high-risk, vulnerable person like Jeanette. Okay, so we have to consider, I just had a thought, if he had to drive 45 minutes to get signal, it could mean that he wanted to call, you know, sooner, but just couldn't. But then again, don't you get, now I don't know about this, but emergency calls. You can call anywhere you are. And equally, if dad said that he used his phone to call mom. Right. So, you know, the 911 call. That's also a big question mark. Why not just make the call in the spot? Here's the deal with the phone signal. From the very first time I met with law enforcement, they told me there is no signal up on that mountain. There's other campground. There's no cell signal there. Yeah, there's none. There's none. Yet, in spite of that, they pointed out that Eduardo claimed he made calls up there. The following is from his interview with detectives. So I sat down on a trunk on the left side and I started making some phone calls. Then I finally, after about, probably about a half an hour, an hour, I called my wife and she answered, she got signal. And I told her, come down. She said, no, I want to go further. I said, no, please come down. I just didn't, you know, I don't want another tragedy. Please come down. She says, okay, I'll come down. He says that when he and Lydia were looking for Jeanette, Lydia hikes up to Long Park, and he tells her to come back down. And he told me the same thing during our interview. I personally have never had any signal whatsoever at Rustler Park either. But when I inquired with some of the locals, I found out that if you have Verizon, which all the Castrions have, it is possible to get a few bars on a clear day on some of the higher peaks in the Chiricahuas. But the question then becomes, if Eduardo was able to make calls from Rustler Park, Why does Oscar drive all the way to the bottom of the mountain in order to place an emergency call? And since 911 calls can be tracked geographically, there is evidence that when Oscar placed that call for help, he was indeed at the bottom of the mountain. He placed the call from a location that was 45 minutes to an hour from Rustler Park. It's either one or it's the other. You can't say on the one hand that you made the phone call to mom to tell her to come back there was cell reception there, but then an Oscar drives 45 minutes because he can't get reception to call 911. Right. Unfortunately, even though detectives were treating this case as a possible foul play, the recording of that 911 call has been erased. I don't know what you think about this, but I always thought it was really strange that her pillowcase had just been laundered, you know. So imagine you leave on a camping trip in the morning. Uh, you're going to wash all your sheets in the morning before you go you know, put them back on the bed mm. and then go on your camping trip. I mean, to me, that seems a bit odd. Like It is, but there's now as queer as folk. I mean, it is a question mark yeah. because even though mum explains it away, oh, I wash everything before I go. 
you know, we've got to think about the time that mum has to do all of this, bearing in mind that she's getting ready for this trip and she has to get Jeanette ready. She's got a lot on. Mm -hmm. Will she have time to launder all these other items that, as you say, much more likely to do it when you come back? I don't know if they have a specific day, for example, some families do this where they change their sheets and they launder the sheets and Mm -hmm. it always happens on a Saturday or a Tuesday. Right. But it is strange, you know, that everything has been laundered. Yeah. And in particular, I would expect the conversation to have been had of, and by the way, when you go into the house, make sure you pick up something, you know, there's a hamper over here, or don't take the pillowcase because I did the laundry yesterday before we left on our trip. Like, I right. would have expected her to, you well, know. Well, the dogs, the handlers, to have said that. You know, they have criteria. The same as saying, when you pick it up, turn the bag inside out, don't touch it. So I, I would be ex- expecting that clarity was given to, it has to be an item that was worn, touched, used by Jeanette, and please don't pick something up that's been laundered, Right. We took all items back to the family's campsite and told them all these items were clean and were not usable. The family did not seem upset at the fact that the scent articles were contaminated. We told them... They weren't upset? That's what they noted. So this was Saturday night. So this is, you know, this was over 24 hours after Jeanette has, has last been seen. The dogs really are the best chance at this time of locating Jeanette because it's dark, because, you know, they are experts with with scent. Dogs don't always get it right, but quite often they do. The dogs who are the best chance of discovering Jeanette, who have a good track record, have just been rendered useless. And now they're going into night two. I would expect there to be a a sense of frustration about that because this is night two now. I think that I would probably work my butt off to try to find a scent item that was, I would rack my brain. Like, what is it that she used and nobody else used? And we need to find that scent item ASAP before the track, you know, disappears. And their laid back attitude and kind of passive attitude in this situation, I find it surprising. Because even when I interviewed them in 2018, they said, I don't remember. What did the dogs get again? And they were kind of talking to each other. What was it, a pillowcase? Uh, and I say, yeah, but it was just laundered. Did you did you do the laundry before, you know, going camping that morning? I don't know. I might have. You know, it was, it was a very, it, it just didn't seem like they could remember or paid attention to those details. But that's a crucial detail because those dogs could have found her alive. I, I call that lack of urgency. So when you see it, It's a gap when you don't see it because in this situation, that's exactly what the expectation would be. Racking the brains to find something or even something that she she touched last or maybe she was holding something last or, you know, a hairbrush or just running through lots of different options. And I don't know whether that happened or not or whether it was just a case it was just accepted that we tried but we failed and then there's a lack of urgency of them sort of pushing for anything more. You know, and that could be lost in translation, but the fact that each item has been laundered, the fact that there's no frustration, alarm, distress, annoyance, the fact that we're not hearing about, I should say, and we're not hearing about the problem-solving part of, oh, but hang on, we might have this, that or the other, 
because as every minute goes by, the, the ticking of the clock is certainly what the search and rescue folk will be thinking about. And you would imagine that it's something that each family member would be thinking about. Right. And again, because of the changing nature of the accounts, if there were one account from mum here and it stayed that one account, we went there, she didn't want to come to the bathroom, I went there, she walked back. If it had stayed that one account, it wouldn't persuade me to ask questions of it. But both mother and father's accounts are inviting questions to be asked about it. And I'm not saying that anyone's lying, I'm just saying that I would want to interview them and I would have wanted to separate out every family member and ask questions of them independently right from the start. And for search and rescue teams, their job is just that, search and rescue. Time is of critical importance, right, to find a high-risk missing person. Mm -hmm. When the detectives come in, their job is different. Their job, they're coming in because foul play is suspected. It just tells you about the, the relaxed nature. Um, and of course, he wasn't a suspect. And, it, and when you are interviewing people, you don't really know what they are. And they could be a witness. They could be uh, a key victim that they haven't told you something, but they could also be a suspect. And the fact that Oscar does play a, a role here in the sense that he arrived in the mountains and he made the 911, you would want to interview them separately. And the problem with Oscar sitting there is that then you get contamination in terms of he hears what dad says and you can never recover that. Right. And dad does default to Oscar. There is a point, and I think it was about the timeline, where dad turns to Oscar and says, well, what was the time? Can you remember? You know, and he defaults to Oscar. And, and that's all the reasons why you don't have someone else sat in the interview because you want to hear it from them and solely them clean. And then you want to interview the other person and you want to check their narratives and you want to compare and contrast. In the interview with dad, at least it's his version, although he does default to Oscar. And even someone's physical presence, by the way, in an interview can change what it is that you say. But with mum, having the daughter there, the, the detective pretty much puts words into her mouth. But there are times where he asks a question and then he answers it. And he doesn't let mum finish. But there's also times where the daughter answers for her. Right. Which is a major problem because you're not hearing it. She is a significant witness. She is the last person to see Jeanette alive. And you need to hear her words clean. And at that point, really, there should have been an interpreter, a translator, someone yes. independent sat there translating and it all should have been written down and, and the interview strategy should have been thought out because the detectives were brought in for a reason. Uh, Search and Rescue brought them in for a reason because they suspected that through inconsistencies that things were not as they were being told. The minute you suspect something isn't as it seems, you can never go back in time and capture that moment. And that's always the challenge, that once people then sit down and they write their timeline together, you lose really right. the authenticity right. and sincerity, particularly, you know, for example, if an accident happens and there's guilt involved, right? It's not always that you're suspecting that somebody intentionally meant harm to somebody. It could be that an accident happened mm -hmm. and then people respond you know, in, in blind panic and, and fear and terror. And sometimes I've seen people make the worst decisions in those moments. And then once you commit to something, it's very hard to tell a different version of what went on. 
So it's not always that you're going into a case and you're suspecting it's a murder. Sometimes right. you could be looking for a homicide that doesn't exist. Yeah. But we've got a mother and a father with very mixed accounts about a small window of time and we've got a lack of urgency. And that speaks volumes, this lack of urgency. Mm -hmm. Everything else is out of their control, but search and rescue, you know, dogs not being able to pick her up, the perfect storm of getting the wrong items, but the lack of urgency, they're not going to speak to the man who's running the, the, the search and rescue. They're leaving the campground on the Sunday, even that. I mean, they're prepared to be there for the weekend. Something extraordinary has now unfolded. Maybe one of them goes back, whatever it is that needs to be done. But I would imagine this is the most pressing thing. But to go back on the account of, and I don't know whether this was said or not, but to go back on the account of it might be a kidnap and therefore we need to be by phone, I'm afraid is just not plausible. And if there was any detective telling them that that was a likely scenario, then that needs to be followed up and challenged because that, is very, uh, it's not good I, practice in any way, shape, or form. I think if I remember form. correctly, he didn't say it was, a he said it wasn't a likely scenario, but he just followed that up with, you do, you really never know. You know, it is a possibility, although too many days have already gone by without any note, so like it mm. wouldn't, it's very unlikely. Yeah, I mean, it's the, the most unlikely scenario in this case. So, you know, the hypotheses are, that she gets lost because we know that she doesn't have uh, a good memory. Um, so she gets lost. There's an accident. That's the second hypothesis that something happens and, and there's an accident. The third is that she's taken and taken by a family member. The fourth is that she's taken, but taken by a stranger, right? And the fifth is that she makes a conscious choice to take herself off for whatever reason. So it could be suicide. And I always have to look at that. You know, when you've got a missing person, is it that they voluntarily take themselves away and out of the situation? And, and I'd probably say five is very unlikely. You could almost just rule it out because she is 100% dependent and we haven't heard anything about anything precipitating this, right? So normally there's an event, there's something that happens before and because she's between, you know, mentally five to seven years old, whether she even thinks on that level. The impression I got is that she wouldn't think on that level. And also, uh, she doesn't even hold a grudge for longer than a minute because of her, her short-term mm. memory loss. So to think that she had planned to end her life, I mean, it's, it's almost impossible right. given that kind of, if, if you can't even stay mad at a person for a minute, you can't really think about planning to end your life. Future planning. It's right. highly unlikely yeah. she future plans. So, which is why I say five, you can probably discount. Yeah. In the next episode of The Labyrinth, I asked Jeanette's family many of the questions that have been raised so far, and you will hear about a mysterious figure that becomes a subject of suspicion. Coming up next on The Labyrinth. They're starting to ask questions of us. She's missing. She, now they really know that she's missing. And I'm pretty sure they're going to want to rule out that we hadn't done something to her first. This is a friend of mine, Vicky from California, who was driving through and was with me that day. And she almost looks like a child. How old is she? She's uh, actually 26. Where's Vicky at now? I have no idea. So point blank, you have nothing to do with this. I have nothing to do with this. You didn't take her. You I didn't. didn't. I have no idea about any of this. I have nothing. I've never seen her before. I have no idea what happened. Do you know what this young lady's name is, sir? 
I have no idea what her name is. Her name is Janet Castrejon. 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 Remember what he said was, if it's God's will, that she was going to be found. What did you think of that? It was. I thought it was weird, and it's probably still weird now.